Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Hi, I'm Pastor Mike. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Multiplication here at Bible Center Church. Discipleship and Multiplication are two things that we're taking more and more seriously here at Bible Center, and I'm excited to be a part of that. So I'm so glad you've decided to join us today here in present, being with us. I'm also so glad for all of you who are joining us online or at home watching television. We consider you a part of our Bible Center family. Even though you're not here in the building, we just consider you family, and we're so thankful that you're a part of us and what we are doing. We are in our crafted series right now, and what the focus of this series is, is what God has made. It points to the greatness of our God, and it points to what he has made and why he's made it. So there's several topics that we've hit. Last week, Matt Friend got a chance to preach on angels. This week, he went ahead and let me teach on Satan and demons. So that's what's coming at you. When it comes to the goal for tonight, I just want to say this up front. The goal is that I want to create awareness and increase knowledge, but I do not want to create preoccupation or distraction from Jesus or Jesus's mission. I have found in the lives of Christians that I've known that they get so into this topic of Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare that they take their eyes off of Jesus. And when that happens, you begin to lose the battles, you begin to lose the war. So it's a weird thing for a pastor to say, I don't want the focus of my sermon to be the focus of your attention and the focus of your time, and the focus of your energy going forward. I want Jesus to be the focus of your energy, of your time, and what you think about as you walk out today, as you turn off your television in a little bit. So we're gonna talk about the enemy because we need to have awareness. The Bible says, be alert but Jesus is who we worship. Jesus is our preoccupation. If you've been a Christian for a while, then you've probably just sensed the reality of a spiritual world around you. If you've spent time in God's God's word, he says that there's kind of a, a veil where just on the other side of it, there are spiritual beings literally all around you doing things at the bidding of God and then against God's will, depending on whether they're angels or evil spirits. Uh, For me personally, I can remember as a kid, I mean, even when I was younger, I would spend time reading God's words. I had an awareness of evil spirits and angels, and I could watch horror movies like, you know, Friday the 13th and stuff with Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers, and yeah, in the moment, I would jump out of my seat. It would scare me, but that night, I could always fall asleep, and it didn't bother me. But I still remember the first time I watched a movie called The Exorcist, and by saying that, I'm not encouraging you to watch it, but I remember the first time I watched it, And I remember the floor I was sitting on. I remember the room that I was in. I remember my buddy sitting beside me. I remember it was dark. And it took me months to get over that movie. Why? Because it was talking about something that I knew had some reality to it. That the evil spirits in our world have some impact on our lives and in the lives of people that I even care about. So that movie freaked me out. That movie messed with me. The other ones I understood as fake. This one, I realized there was something real about it. So I felt that. The Bible does not answer all of our questions on the subject of Satan and demons. Uh, Sometimes it speaks about them directly. Sometimes it speaks about them mysteriously, where it talks about what they do and how they act, but it doesn't tell us always why, or it doesn't give us the details. Sometimes the Bible just simply shares a historical story of what happened, and mentions just the reality that there are angels or demons there in the process. They're just characters. They're part of the story, 
but it's not necessarily giving us a theological background to why they do what they do. Our four questions for tonight, where we're going to go, is the first question is, where did they come from? Where did Satan and demons come from? God didn't create them directly, but yet they're here. What is their role? What are they trying to accomplish? What does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? And finally, what is my role and what is your role in this fight? If we're in a battle, we better realize we're in a battle and know how we're supposed to respond. So first off, let's start with this. Where did they come from? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This is in 2 Peter, but you also see a very similar verse in Jude, verse 6. So notice this. God did not spare angels. So before demons were demons, demons were angels. And when they sinned, so they're angels who were holy like God. God created them in holiness, but they sinned. And when they sinned, everything changed for them. They were cast by God into hell and committed to pits of darkness. So this is interesting. So when sin was found in them, God cast them out. And it says into hell, or this is, the Greek word is Tartarus, okay? So it's a different word than what we would typically use for the, for the word hell. But the idea is that there are lower regions that God put many of these evil beings, these evil angels into, and it sounds like they are stuck there. Now, as we go a little bit farther, we're going to find out there's plenty of angels that still roam the earth. Satan himself is said to roam the earth, but there's a number of them that have been committed to pits of darkness. If you think about the, the story of Jesus where he introduces himself to a guy, and then he finds out there's a guy who has a demon inside of him called Legion, he says, for we are many. In that moment, the demon knows who he's talking to. He knows it's the son of God who has power and authority to do whatever he wants with the demon. And the demon pleads with Jesus saying, don't send us to the pit. Please send us into the pigs. So they prefer the pigs over the pit and Jesus sends them to the pigs. So there's some pit that some of those angels are stuck in, those demonic forces, angels who have fallen, and they're probably gonna be there until judgment. But there's also plenty who still roam and make their living here on earth. So let's go to the next passage. And I'll just be honest, this is a hard passage. Uh, this will not be super easy to understand, but I'm going to do my best to make it understandable. In Ezekiel 28, there's a section where God is talking to the king of Tyre. But while he's talking to the king of Tyre, he begins to allude to some greater, stronger, super powerful evil force that's in the world. Now, God does this sometimes when he teaches certain subjects. When he talks about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about the husband and the role of the wife. But he says this points to Jesus and the church. So in the moment, he's talking about the husband and the wife, but he's also at the same time pointing to Jesus and his love for the church. So here, he's talking about the king of Tyre, but he's also talking about something bigger, something darker. Uh, we believe here that he's talking about Satan himself. So we're going to be reading about the king of Tyre, but actually God's taking us back to what happened when Satan fell. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, 
So at this point, this cannot be a man that's being talked to. In fact, we know from verse 13, you were in Eden. If you think about the book of Genesis, who was in Eden? Adam, Eve, God, and the serpent. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. There are different types of angels. There's seraphim, there's just regular angels, and there's some called cherubs. And it seems like in Scripture, they seem to have a, like a higher class of angel, like they were very powerful angels. So he was anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. God called him that. He made him that. You were on the holy mount of God. He was there with God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until, here's where everything changes, till wickedness was found in you. So he was perfect. He was beautiful. He was blameless. And then all of a sudden he was wicked because wickedness was found in him. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. So he knew he was beautiful and his heart became proud and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Okay, and that's all that there is. So <laughs> I was waiting for another verse. Uh, so here we see several things are true, okay? That he was considered a powerful angel. He was beautiful. He was perfect in his beauty. He was blameless. But when wickedness and sin was found in him, the sin of pride, he was cast down, okay? He was cast down. And it's really easy to look at this and think, oh, what a horrible being. But I still know that you and I wake up every day and struggle with pride as well. We do. But he was cast down. And there's no redemptive plan for angels or for demons in God's redemptive plan for the world. So he was cast down, forever cast down, from the mount of God. So let's go to the next question. What is their goal? What are they trying to accomplish? What are Satan's, What is Satan and the demons trying to do while they're still here on earth? So I'm going to throw several things at you. In fact, I'm going to give you a couple of different lists of things. These lists are found in your notes, your sermon notes on the app, if you'd like to follow along. I'll also be going through all these again in a core class. So if you on Sunday night would like to look up the core class to go deeper, I'll be doing even more points than what I'm going to do here. So this is going to feel like teaching for about 10 minutes. Here it comes. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 teaches us this, that the enemy seeks to ascend above God and to place his throne above the throne of God. His desire is mutiny, to take over, to replace God as being the most powerful and most beautiful being above God himself. In John 8, 44, it says that he is a murderer, a liar, the father of lies. So when he speaks lies, he speaks his normal native tongue. It goes on to say in scripture that he participates in accusation, temptation, deception, lying, blinding, destruction, and torment. Demons seem to function as Satan's minions and oppose God and seek to disrupt the work of God. It is possible, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that Satan took up to a third of the angels with him when he fell. Okay, up to a third. Well, how many is a third? Scripture says that the number of angels is innumerable, so a third is a lot. 
It says in Revelation 12, 9, that Satan deceives the world. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, an angel of light. So have you ever read one of those books or heard about one of those books where someone who doesn't know the Lord dies and they see a soft light and they're like drawn to it? We know from scripture that those who die and don't know the Lord, their eternity is not going to be a soft, gentle light that is attractive. It's actually going to be a pretty horrid situation. Just in my mind, and this is just opinion, Pastor Mike's opinion, this isn't scripture, you just wonder. You wonder if they're seeing this. If someone's on their deathbed, they go out for a while, maybe they're seeing this. The enemy can disguise himself. Sometimes the most beautiful things in your life that you think will be best for you are actually the most dangerous things in your life. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. We read about his beauty in Ezekiel 28. He is also considered the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them, that is, you and me, before God night and day. Evil spirits participate in spreading false doctrine, spreading sickness, fostering self-destructiveness, and even possessing or oppressing people. So as we look through Scripture, evil spirits seem to have this ability to have an incredibly strong influence, especially on those who don't know Jesus. For those who are not Christians, they don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them, so there appears to be room for other spirits to take residence at times. So when we see Jesus going through the New Testament and casting out demons, and then Paul doing the same, and even some of the other apostles doing the same, we live in a world where we just don't assume that that's still happening. But there's no reason to believe that that is no longer happening. That could certainly still be happening. Um, I remember back, goodness, this would be in like 1992. I was on the beach with a friend, and we were doing some just initiative evangelism. We were walking up to people, trying to get into conversations to share the gospel. And for some reason, I always enjoyed going up to the people that looked very interesting. So there was this guy off by himself, and me and the person I was with, we started walking towards the person. And as we got closer, he started noticing that he had tattoos all over his body, really long hair, kind of you know, scruffy when it comes to all the hair on his face. That's all fine. That's great. But as I got closer, I realized what the tattoos were. He had a big pentagram on his back. Uh, kind of over his heart, he had like an upside-down cross. And as we got closer, I'm like, ooh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. And as we, got, as we approached, he looked at us, and I swear he growled at us. Like, he growled at us. And then I'm like, well, we're still going to try this. And I start the conversation. Hey, have you ever considered where you're going to go when you die? Something, something like that. And he just basically looked at me and the person beside me and like literally, like with these crazy eyes, was kind of growling at us and just said, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to try to do the growl. He basically growled and said, I'm not going to talk to you. And I remember looking at the person beside me and I said, we shouldn't be here. And we turned around and we walked away. Uh, just, it felt like a moment where we were just in the presence of something very, very evil. So it, I'm kind of teasing about it, but really it was a moment where I felt like we were in the presence of something very, very dark. And that, from my point of view, might have been an example of being in the presence of someone who was actually possessed or inhabited by a demon. Now, when it comes to Christians, you have the Holy Spirit. You have a no vacancy sign on your heart and on your life. There's no room for an evil spirit, but it doesn't mean that they can't have some influence 
and even maybe oppress people at times. If you've been around broken, hurting people, uh, even Christians, you just sometimes sense that there's a presence that you want to pray for, that God just removes spiritual forces from their life. We go on to learn about the enemy, that he is powerful, like he really is. The Bible says he's powerful. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the God of this world. At one point in the book of Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. I mean, that's a powerful description. But at the exact same time, he is a defeated foe, and he lives in subjection to Christ. So both of these things are true. He's very powerful, but he lives in subjection to Christ. Jesus says he has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. That includes this powerful enemy. We see in scripture that people are sometimes driven mad because of evil spirits, and even sometimes given like this super powerful strength. In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, there's this interesting story where these seven brothers are going around and trying to cast out demons. And they go into this one home, and they basically say to this guy, uh, in the name of Jesus, who that guy Paul talks about, we're going to cast you out. And the demon looks back at him and says, basically, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, who are you? And the Bible says he beats up the seven brothers until they're bloodied and naked, and they go running out of the house. So there's super strength at times. I don't get it. I don't know why, but scripture shows that that can happen. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says out loud that he receives a thorn in the flesh. He says that the thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan to torment him. So at this point, is that messenger a spirit? Is it a person? We don't know, but there's some evil force at work that's actually affecting Paul on a daily basis. The Bible goes on to say that he prays several times that God would take it away from him, and God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. So that ongoing spiritual battle continues in Paul's life. He feels the pain of that thorn in the flesh, whatever that is exactly, and God lets him go through it for a period of time. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Okay, so we talked about that at the goal at the beginning. We want to be aware and we want to have knowledge. So be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking, assessing, looking around for someone to devour. So we need to be on the alert. There needs to be awareness, not preoccupation, but awareness. And I want you to notice the word devour. It's the concept of destroying, consuming. So when you are sitting on the couch on Saturday and you're about to watch the big game and your cable goes out, don't blame that on Satan, okay? If your shoe doesn't fit right and you kind of get like a, a scab or a blister on your foot, that also is probably not Satan. That's just part of living in a world that's broken. When you sense that something's trying to destroy you, that could be Satan. His goal isn't get to give you a bad day. His goal is to wipe you out, destroy you so that you can no longer bring glory to God because he wants his throne above God's, so he wants no one to be giving God glory. The picture here gives me this thought in my head. When you see like a herd of antelope or zebras or gazelles, when one gets off to the side, if you're watching natural, you know, the one of those, those shows about nature, that's where the lion hits, right? 
It's when the one gets outside of the herd, when they're wandering by themselves, whether it's a young one or a sickly one, that's when they get grabbed. That also happens very often to Christians. When you're outside of community, when you're not deeply connected to other spiritual friends, it's really easy to get picked off. He's seeking. What do you think he's looking for? He's looking for someone who's easy to pick off. Don't be the one who is easy to pick off. In 1 Peter 5, 9, just the next verse, it says, but resist him. So be alert and resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers, that's all Christians, throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So how many demons are there? What kind of presence do they have here on planet Earth? This kind of tells us. If you're a believer, whether you're in Sudan America, Canada, wherever you are, you are going through similar suffering that's brought on through spiritual warfare. So there are enough evil spirits in the world that every single believer, every single church is in some way struggling and suffering because of their presence in the world and in their life. So there's a lot of them and they are powerful and they are having some effect on you and your life. So in summary, this defeated foe is smarter than you. He's stronger than you. He knows the word of God better than you. And sometimes he'll twist it to try to tempt and destroy you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your tendencies more than you do. He is fervently looking for chinks in your armor. He is prowling. He is assessing. He is seeking out the weak and using lies, temptations, and accusations to destroy you, to devour you and your relationships and your service in God's church. Why? To rob God of glory. So what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? Ephesians 6, 12 is a great verse. It talks about the fact that our struggle isn't necessarily with what we see. Our struggle is, what, is what, with what we don't see. And he calls them powers and rulers of the age. He's pointing to a spiritual world. So even though we see the physical world, and it feels like it's people who are our enemy, he says there's a world behind that. And your actual enemy are those forces that live behind the physical world. In Daniel chapter 10, there's this really interesting story that we're going to jump into. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has been fasting and mourning and praying for 21 days according to verses two and three. And an angel has been sent to him, but this angel has been held up for 21 days. And then it appears that the angel then was sent at the same time that Daniel started praying. So Daniel starts praying, an angel is sent, but the angel doesn't get there until three weeks later. And this tells us why. In verse 12, it says this, then he, the angel continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But, and this is where it gets interesting, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So he was coming in order to explain a vision to Daniel that he had had, but he was held up by this prince of Persia. He wasn't held up in traffic. 
There wasn't like an accident. Like a spiritual being detained another spiritual being and prevented him from going to where God has sent him to be until another angel named Michael shows up and Michael somehow intervenes. He is no longer detained or held up and he continues on his way as God has sent him to go. In verses 20 and 21, it says this, that same angel speaks. He says, soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So the same angel that came and talked to Daniel, the same one who was basically imprisoned or detained, is now returning to fight against this prince of Persia, which is some other spiritual being. And then there's a third spiritual being called the prince of Greece who is on his way. So there's several things that seem to stick out from this passage. One, angels seem to have particular assignments, okay? That angel was sent by God to accomplish something. Angels are sent, and that sending can be in response to our prayers. Evil angels are fighting against the desires of God, the works of God, and the angels of God. There is some sort of actual fighting taking place with real consequences and real results. These angels are fighting against evil forces. This fighting has some level of consequence on the timing of certain events. Why isn't this happening? Why isn't God answering this prayer? Well, according to this, sometimes God has sent out his forces and there's just, they're not there yet. How interesting is that? Some angels appear to be more powerful than others. That angel couldn't free himself. He needed Michael to show up and then he was freed. Demons also seem to have a particular assignment. Demons to nations or to peoples. Like Michael was considered Daniel's angel, if you notice that, but these other demons were called the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. This kind of goes along with some other things we see in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Psalms, and a couple other places. God speaks of the gods of the nations as actually being demons and evil spirits, probably much like we see with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece who's fighting against the works of God. These demons seem to have some ability to sway, to guide, or to lead nations in a particular direction, asserting really powerful influence. Prayer and seeking God seems to have some connection to this fight. So when we talk about praying, like God seems to respond and send angels when we pray. Like that's actually something we do to participate. This warfare one day ends. This is not a forever war. One day this ends as Satan and the demons are cast into the lake of fire, eternal fire. So it feels like this battle just rages and rages, but reality is one day it ends, and it ends with them being in eternal torment forever, cast out of God's presence and no longer fighting against God or God's people. Last question. What is my role? What is your role? How do we fight? How has God called us to be engaged in this spiritual warfare? Uh, I would suggest the first way to think about this is we handle spiritual warfare much like how we handle everything else. God has called us in everything to rely on the Holy Spirit and to speak out using the word of God. Where there's spiritual warfare or an addiction or a struggle or a relationship, you rely on the Holy Spirit and you speak forth and live out the word of God. 
but there's some specific things that he talks about when it comes to spiritual warfare in addition to that. And I want to acknowledge that there have been some really strange books written on spiritual warfare. When I talk about not becoming like distracted by this, I've been a distracted person before. I remember when I was young, I started reading all these interesting kind of kooky books on spiritual warfare, and you can kind of get really into it and get your eyes taken off the gospel and get your eyes taken off of Jesus. So those are out there, but our focus has to be Jesus and Jesus's mission. So even as I go deeper into some of these things we need to do, the ultimate answer is never to focus more on the war than the one who's won the war. The focus is always on Jesus, never on the war. 1 Peter 5.9 says this, that we're called to resist him, standing firm in the faith. Resist him. Now, in my mind, it almost feels like a picture of someone trying to come into my house through my front door, and I'm pushing on the front door this way, and he's pushing back on the door this way to come in. So what does it actually mean to resist him? Like, how do we participate in this war? Well, here's a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to suggest that you swing your sword. You swing your sword. In Ephesians 6.12, Ephesians 6 is a section on the armor of God. And most of the armor of God is defensive in nature. There's a breastplate, there's a helmet, there's gauntlets, there's you know, stuff that you wear on your feet. But there's also an offensive weapon. It's the word of God. In Ephesians 6.12, it says this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Catch that description again. The sword of the spirit, so the sword is of the spirit, which is, but it is, the word of God. I want you to notice the incredible connection here between the word of God and the spirit of God. They're never taken apart in this description of warfare. Our offensive weapon is the Holy Spirit and the word of God working together. And it makes sense. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God, and it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the Word of God. He's the one that helps us interpret it, understand it, and apply it. So we're called to grab it and to use it. We have some discipleship groups that are running throughout our church. There'll be a day when we have enough of them that we can invite everybody in discipleship groups. We're almost there. But a third of the time that we spend in our discipleship groups is specifically spent to make sure you know how to wield your sword. If you don't know how to understand interpret and apply God's word, that sword will do you no good. It's like handing a baby a bunch of different like sporks and forks and spoons. They don't know how to handle their utensils. If you don't know how to handle God's word, you don't know how to battle because you have no ability to use your sword the way it's designed to be used. So in those discipleship groups, we're saying, this is how you use your sword. You rely on the Holy Spirit and you pick it up and you swing it. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He took God's word and spoke it back to the enemy. That's how you swing your sword. We also fight on our knees. Jesus fought on his knees. Paul fought on his knees. We just read about Daniel who fought on his knees. We have a prayer team here at Bible Center. And about 30 minutes before the service started, I sent them a text and asked them to be praying for me. I had 53 people already respond and say, I'm praying for you, Pastor Mike. Like, we fight on our knees for one another. That's part of how we do it. We rehearse the words of God by talking to God and asking him to do what he's promised to do. We pray and we swing our sword. Also, you run with your pack. I hope your pack looks better than them, but you run with your pack. You have a crew, you have a circle, people who know you and you know them. Like they really know what's going on in your life. 
So when you start to hurt, when you start to struggle, when you start to drift a little bit in your faith, that crew says, we're not going to let you go. We're going to hold on to you. When temptation comes in, when warfare comes into your life, you've got a battalion who's got your back. So you need to have these spiritual friends. It's like that roaring lion description. If you're the one who's strayed from the pack, you're going to get taken out. Run with your pack. One more thing. If you have a pack and you watch your brother or sister wander off and be alone, pull them into your pack. I don't want to be the one standing before Jesus saying, thank you so much for all the spiritual friends. And I'm sorry I just left this guy go by, this lady go by and not pull them in. And Jesus says, I watched them get destroyed and nobody took care of them. Where were you? Like, we need to be people who draw other people in. We always make room. We always call others in. The last one, recognize your greatest enemy and the greatness of God. Sometimes we get so focused on Satan that we forget that our scariest thing is our own heart. My biggest concern isn't what Satan does to me. My biggest concern is what my own heart does. When I wake up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror, my first prayer is Jesus continue to change this wicked heart. That needs to be our first thought, not how's he going to try to get me today? My sinful nature, your sinful nature is a part of who we are. Now until we see Jesus face to face, your greatest enemy lives within, not without. Be aware of that, but also be aware of the greatness of your God. 1 John 4, 4 says this, you dear children are from God and have overcome them. Why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The greatness of God is demonstrated more at the cross than any place else. It's at the cross where Jesus crushes the head of Satan. It's at the cross and in the resurrection. It's that moment where the enemy's power is completely destroyed, utterly destroyed. The head of the serpent is crushed. Jesus is then, now, and forever victor over sin, death, and Satan himself. So how do we fight? We swing our sword. We fight on our knees. You run with your pack and you recognize that the greatest enemy is within, and you remember the greatness of your God. We fight by keeping Jesus the center of our focus. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each person here and each person listening at home. Keep our focus on you. The cross reminds us that you've defeated our enemy. It's the cross that calls us deeper into our relationship with you and keeps us focused on you. Jesus, we trust you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority belongs to you. Glorify yourself in each person here, each person watching, and in your church. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.